When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talk to fellow scientist and podcaster Stuart Higgins about lithography. This is a making process that he uses in his lab to make electronics in a high-tech clean room laboratory setting. But it's also a common process in various artistic practices too, as you'll hear in this conversation. I started by asking Stuart how he came to learn about lithography. My background is a real mixture. Um, so I've jumped around the sciences a little bit. So I started off when I was a master's student kind of looking at um, particle accelerators and like big nuclear physics science stuff, mainly because it was cool and big and shiny and exciting and had big buttons that you pressed and it made loud swooshing noises. Um, and then I ended up doing a PhD on solid state physics. So understanding things like semiconductors and electrical circuits and electrical components and bits like that. Um, and then in the last few years, I've moved into um, uh, the field of bioengineering, which is about making materials that, that interact with cells and biological systems and bringing in some of my past and looking at how we can make electronic materials that interact with the body and interact with cells. Um, and that's kind of been me for the last... Oh, God, when did I start? 10 years, 10 years now, 11 years. God, blimey, it flies by. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, so I'm kind of breaking one of my own podcasting rules here because normally I say that I'm not allowed to interview scientists on this podcast. Um, the mm. purpose of it is to be a conversation between kind of someone on the scientific side being me and then someone on the more artistic side of making um, and kind of seeing where the links are. However, I've broken that rule because I thought it would be interesting to talk to you about the making techniques that you use in the lab every day um, and see if we can find links between those and artistic practices and um, methodologies. Um, because the whole point of this podcast is to show that, you know, through materials, actually science and art are just two different ways of looking at the same thing. Um, so I thought this could be kind of quite an interesting study on on that kind of thesis. So that being said... Um, it'd be great to hear about some of the processes that you use in the lab um, on the materials. Yeah, so weirdly, uh, the kind of unifying theme through a lot of my research has been this use of um, 
different ways of patterning materials and in particular the ways that are linked to um, fundamentally like photography and linked to things like um, graphics art techniques so like printing uh, and all those kind of tools and so this has been kind of a recurring um, toolbox that I've used over the last few years um, and it's it's weird because I kind of you know before I went into science I was very much into the art side of things so I, I i got as far as as level art and that's the point i had to stop i wasn't allowed to there was no way under the uk system of me studying any more art without sacrificing more science mm. which was like a big shame at the time i always like wanted to do it because we you know i was doing loads of great stuff like you know screen printing and and a lot of photography and getting really hands-on with developing um film and stuff itself and i, I loved all that and then when i came to do my research i found that the way that we make um or the way we pattern materials to make things like uh, uh, electronic circuits is directly using these technologies and these techniques from the graphics arts worlds so take something like a, a microprocessor so like a uh, something you might you know, a chip you find inside your smartphone or something um fundamentally you're using techniques that are linked to photography to shape and pattern and build up and remove material in a way that constructs these really super miniaturized circuits and so weirdly there there's been these kind of like really strong links between stuff can you describe a bit how those processes work yeah so fundamental to it all is a process called photolithography um and so lithography being the whole i mean i loved i remember during my phd i was like writing my thesis and i was like googling what lithography meant and lithography means like everything <laughs> i mean in like in an artistic sense it has a very specific meaning to, to do with like you know woodcut images and printing but like it mm. can be attached to so many different prefixes that like there are so many different forms of lithography There's this fundamental idea of transferring patterns between things and uh, photolithography is the idea that you can um take a material and what we're talking about here is a flat disc of silicon so something that looks a bit like a a kind of slither of mirror um like a little like 10 centimeter i use kind of like looks a bit like a cd that's kind of really shiny um and you can coat it with a photographic uh, or a photosensitive material so you put a thin layer on top of it and let's say i want to i don't know make some wires or lines on that surface um i will project light through a stencil onto that surface and the areas that are hit um, by the light will either become more or less um, soluble. And what that means is that in the same way you might develop a film, uh, develop a, a kind of classic image, um, you can develop these these patterns and they'll either remove or, or um, leave material on the surface. And it all sounds a bit kind of esoteric but i remember like i'm so strong memories of the first time i've ever seen like there are there, there are moments in your scientific career where you remember new bits of science you've learned or new things you've seen um and they just got stuck there in your head and i remember being taken into the lab as a new student and being um shown by a, a, a an older member of staff how to make do this process and so we'd take our little slither of of, of silicon and we put this material on top we coat it on top and then we put it in the machine to project the light on. And then the, the machine that does the projection is quite complicated because you want it all to be nice and aligned and super focused and, and no blurring and no weirdness going on. And then, you know, you'd press the button and it would shine the light through and it's shining UV light. So suddenly for a moment, everything glows greeny blue. Not that I'd know because you're not supposed to look at it. And of course, you always look away when doing that step. But it's like a beautiful bluey green, mm. like a really rich color, um, a bit kind of mystical. And... 
you take out this thing that looks blank because it hasn't been developed and you place it into your developer solution. So if anyone's ever done any photography, you know, you take your, your um, similarly you might take like your exposed photographic film, uh, uh, the photo paper and you put it into the tray of developer. Identical. We put it into a tray of developer and you slosh it around and then just like 15 seconds, the pattern starts to emerge and you start to see this kind of complex circuit pattern emerging on the thing. And it's just, it's really magical. It is that same feeling of like creating a photograph, like you suddenly see the result of what you've done. Um, and I just, yeah, it just, it just, it just stuck in my head so strongly. Um, and because there's the artistry, because you get to make all of those patterns. So that was a pattern I'd made myself and I'd got the stencil made and I'd done all the work to get to that point. And suddenly you see something, you've, a design you've created, a pattern you've created emerge on this, on this material. And I think the one of the things that really struck me as well when I first started working in these kinds of laboratories was their connection to photographic darkrooms as well. Um, so, you know, in photography, in, in uh, do we call it analog photography? Is that the right? Phrase? I guess so. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> photography, right? It's it's the original. It's the OG, OG, <laughs> the OG photography. Um, and so, you know, you're going to take your film and. Uh, depending on the film let's say you know black and white film you're gonna you're not gonna want to expose it to a broad range of light because otherwise obviously the silver halide crystals inside the film are going to react and and it's all going to change and you're going to lose your image so you often work under a red light or a dark red light or under no light at all and when you go into an electronics lab um everything's yellow everything's this really yellow tint um and it's really quite disorientating after a while it really starts to throw your perception of color uh, and that's because the materials we're using are sensitive to ultraviolet light, which is on the blue end of the spectrum. So it's, you know, it's a photosensitive material, but it's not in it's not sensitive in the same range as photographic film is. And so you filter out everything that's on the blue end of the scale, which means everything starts looking yellow. Mm. Um, and so you do get this real sense of like being a photographer. And I fill up, I, you know, when I buy equipment for the lab, I sometimes buy photo, uh, photography trays and developer trays and stop trays and things because we're doing the same process. And it's that field has got a lot of really good equipment that's already optimized for that. Um, and I love doing it. But yeah, it's really freaky. So I remember when I finished, I did four years of work in this lab and you can't take your lab book outside of the lab for various reasons. You have to stay in the lab. And I took it out for the first time and I saw it under natural light for the first time. And I realized I've been writing in blue ink for years. <laughs> but you and didn't I realize. Just never knew. All my lab notes were in blue. And I thought I'd been writing in black the whole time because it just, it filtered it out. And and you come out after being in the, in the lab for being like, you can spend eight hours in the lab, you come out and suddenly the world seems super vibrant. Yeah. Because you're just like getting, getting all that extra light back in. It's just really, I just, the whole experience is quite visceral. Like the whole process mm. of doing the experiments and doing the patterning is, is very full on. And it, it did remind me a lot of the few times I've done kind of photography and being in a dark room and then coming back out into the light again afterwards. Yeah. Are you, um, are you describing a clean room? So are you kind of like suited up hazmat style as well? <laughs> Yeah, so the the particular kind of lab is a clean room, which basically means a room that's got a really good air conditioning system that keeps forcing um, dust out of it. Mm. And so before you're allowed to go in, because we're inherently dusty things and we generate a lot of dust, you have to wear a full kind of like polyester boiler suit (laughs) that covers your head and you've got a big... uh, mask on so we weirdly wearing masks is very normal for me it's just very standard <laughs> process um and, and and goggles and everything and you i usually wear two layers of gloves mm. um partly to keep them clean uh keep, keep the inside room clean and so your all of your senses are kind of numbed mm. and so you're working at a bench and you might be working it's very noisy and there's this kind of continual roar of the systems around you 
and you can't really feel things because the two layers of gloves are kind of numbing your fingers a little bit and you can't see the full color gamut mm. um and you're you're because of the goggles you're blinkered a little bit as well so it's a really intense it can be a really intense process where you're kind of just staring at your 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 material that you're trying to pattern and things go wrong and so you know you can be in there for five or six hours and a lot of the work is cleaning basically your you, dust is not your friend so you spend hours and hours cleaning if it's a bit of glass you're patterning or if it's a bit of silicon you're patterning or, or in my case a bit of plastic sometimes i spend forever cleaning it and i mean like washing it and rewashing it and drying it and all this kind of stuff and every now and then it doesn't work and it's just like it could be so soul crushing because you've spent so much time and that you know the picture half develops but the corner's missing mm. Or my favorite one is you've developed it and it's beautiful and you take it out to kind of dry it and you pull it out of the, of the developer solution to dry it and suddenly it gets caught on a gust of the extraction fan and gets blown into the extractor system <laughs> and it's gone. <laughs> and for a fleeting moment, you saw this thing that you've made and you saw, oh, that, was, that was a good one. That was a really good one. And then it's gone and, it's, and like Just sucked up, sucked away. And it's, it's a real kind of, yeah, there's a brutality to it. Like it's a very... Because it's so artistic. I've always described it as artisanal because like even the way, especially with new processes, the way that you um, imagine, you know, got a bit of pair of tweezers and you pick up a little bit of, I don't know, a five centimeter square bit of plastic that you put a pattern on and you're dipping it into the developer in a beaker. And the way that you swish back and forth with the tweezers will affect how that pattern comes out. If you're really aggressive, it's going to overdevelop. It's going to wash stuff away. You're going to be left with holes in your design. Um, if you're not if you're too timid it'll kind of only half develop and then you end up with a load of kind of weird gunky stuff in the gaps and so there's a real and you see you don't realize until you start training students who have never done it before that there's a there's a kind of process to it and there's a skill and you learn how to handle things with tweezers and you learn a kind of set of movements and motions so that you know okay it's going to develop for 10 seconds but it's going to develop with 10 seconds in a very specific manner with a specific set of agitation and so I've always enjoyed that kind of skill aspect of it like mm. it's a skill like you have to develop it and with time you get better at it and you get a feel for when things go wrong so a student can you know drop me a line and say oh god Stuart, i've been doing this experiment in the lab it's just not working and i can have a look at like what they've been doing or something and instinctively i can't tell you a science thing particularly like change the number by this amount it can't be a quantitative answer mm. but qualitative i'm like i think you i think you heated it up for too long or i think you swished it a bit too hard mm. You know, try angling it a little bit when you develop your image or whatever it is. And so all those kind of tangible handheld aspects of it that I really love are just that are part of the job. I just there's such a different skill set to crunching numbers in a, in a spreadsheet or whatever, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So there is actually an element of feeling to it, because when you were describing being in a clean room and being blinkered and, you know, hazmat suited up, um, it struck me that you were very then removed from the materials, you know, wearing two pairs of gloves, holding them with tweezers. But actually what you were describing about having to, you know, almost like sense and have a feeling about how long is too long for the etching process or um you know moving it in a certain way that is much more of a kind of handmade process um rather than something that's just purely sort of robot scientist yeah and the kind of constraints on the working space force your focus onto the material and they force the focus onto the process you can't um you can't be distracted if you turn away from a moment you leave it a second or two too like and it literally can be a few seconds mm. that's it you know all your work is gone for the morning um and so it's yeah, it's 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 um it's really interesting. And obviously like in, in industry, 
that's kind of gone a little bit because you know when when samsung or whoever make their huge computer chips it's, it's mainly robots yeah. kind of handling things automated and you need that and you need that for the level of reliability but when you're at this kind of r&d stage where you're trying new things for the first time you know the, the whether your experiment works or not really depends on how much coffee i've drank that morning <laughs> like if i'm really if i've not drank enough coffee i'm not going to be on it and it's going to be i'm going to miss something and it's going to overdevelop whatever if i've drank too much coffee i'm not going to have the hand motor control to do fine work it's just not going to happen and you can i could go into that there are times where i'm in the lab and i'm like i am too tired to be doing this i need to go home now mm. and i have to leave this for the day because i don't have the inherent control uh, to utilize my skills to do this thing properly yeah. and i know whatever i do it's going to be fine it's, it's just not i'm not going to get the result i need this way ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you were saying that you do um, sort of electronic circuits and those sorts of designs. Um, Have you ever done like a kind of artistic design? Like just for fun, we didn't. So interestingly, without um, not with photolithography because the the designs themselves, the stencils mm. you use are really expensive. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you can only sneak so much, so many Easter eggs into one of those designs before it's kind of like <laughs> you're starting to take the mick a bit. Um, but with other techniques that I've used, yeah, we've had some fun with it. So um, that is one way. So what I was talking about with photolithography is about putting a pattern onto a surface. Mm. And so what you've done is once you've developed your pattern, what that means is that you've got um, uh, typically something like your silicon surface is mostly covered with a kind of gluey resin material, but there are gaps left on the surface. And then you can then go ahead and put gold down or, mm-hmm. or, or other materials or eat away at it with etching or something with acids and things. And that transfers your pattern into the material. And so that belongs to a kind of class of pattern transfer processes that are kind of um very rigid and reliant on these techniques and another area of my research has looked at ways of using other graphics arts processes so printers uh, inkjet printers or printing presses and so on and that was because some of the materials we're using the electronic materials that we wanted to pattern um can be made to behave like inks and so you can make them soluble and you can formulate your own ink 
and so where we started to play around with it was well okay we could obviously we could make our ink and put it in a printer and print on a print a pattern on a material print a pattern on a surface but we could also load up a fountain pen with this ink <laughs> or like you could get those um the watercolor brushes so yeah. they're like a, they have a little reservoir of, of water so you can you know soften your design uh you can start filling those with these inks that you've made um you don't tell the chemist because the, the, materi- the materials are really expensive and like really hard work to make and they only give you like <laughs> half a gram at a time. But there's, there's enough to play around with it, you know. Yeah. Um, and you also learn really quickly about what solvents um, aren't compatible with artistic equipment um, when you start to dissolve a load of fountain pens really quickly. Um, but so there's this, this weird part where I've got these kind of classic microfabrication techniques of so ways you make kind of transistors and processes. And mm. then there's kind of new field of, of technologies where... The scientists are trying to steal from a graphics arts and borrow from a graphics mm. arts and try and apply techniques that have existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years and use them to, again, pattern new materials in different ways. And so, yeah, we used to like um, try like writing messages in these super um, uh, new material inks that we were, were playing with just to see whether this concept would work. Yeah. That, you know, could you even draw your own electrical circuit, so to speak? Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, actually, that leads me on to one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, which was um, kind of the development of these techniques, really. You know, what's their origin? You kind of hinted that it was in kind of the, I suppose, artistic side um, that we've been printing in this way and with these kind of techniques for, for a very, very long time. And then, you know, very recently, scientists have come along and pinched them. Um, do you know much about the sort of history of these kinds of techniques? Oh, it depends on the technique. So um, something like uh, gravier printing. So gravier printing press is a, a thousand year old technology um, that has been adopted over the years to kind of print books and to print newspapers. So when you think of um, when you, you think of something like a printing press and you, know, you think of newspapers whizzing around, you're thinking of either gravier printing or some variant thereof, or a very similar process where you've got a big rolling pattern that's being pressed against the paper. Um and that that technique, which is you know almost impossible to kind of trace down the origins of, you know, going back to kind of Gutenberg and the printing mm. press and the book printing and all this kind of stuff. Um, probably in the last 10, 15 years, we've started to borrow um, in into science. And so the area, the field of science was called organic electronics. And what that means is basically um, using these special inks that kind of conduct electricity to make your circuit and print your circuit instead of um, kind of the traditional methods. And it was it was very interesting to kind of try and adopt those processes because you, you kind of have to respect what's come before. And it, it's it's so easy, and not, not through any kind of in real intent, but it's so easy as a scientist to jump into a new area and effectively start reinventing the wheel from the ground up. And you start thinking about ideas again. And just a little bit of kind of tangential searching aside, and maybe not in the places you'd normally look search for information, you're not normally in a journal or so, um, you can start to realise that there's a rich world of information that already exists because people have been doing this for hundreds of years and mm. people have really good ways of doing it. And so what I found with things like um, printing that was really interesting is that we were trying to solve problems that, that printers had already solved. Um, and I have to be, you know, I worked with a, a brilliant scientist called, called Ben Muir, who whose background also was a lot of photography and, and 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 crafts. And he brought in this kind of rich influence of knowing about some of these these techniques. And so something was like, 
when you want to print ink onto a page, there are a number of different things you have to check, but fundamentally you have to make sure that the ink's going to stick. And we know this because if we take a ballpoint pen and we try drawing on a plastic cup or something or a ceramic cup, it's not going to, the ink doesn't stick, it doesn't even come out of the, mm. the nozzle. And so there's an awful lot of material science there about, um, you know, how those molecular bonds are forming and whatever it is that's, that's kind of causing that interaction between the ink that stops it from sticking. But if you're a printer 100 years ago, you don't know any of that and you don't need to know any of that. You just need a solution that makes your ink stick. And so there were, you know, I think they're called dyne pens. You know, there were these techniques developed. So these are like known, um, a set of pens that you can buy where the ink is varied slightly in each. And typically the solvent that the ink is, the pigment is carried in is varied. And you can just draw them against your sheet of paper or whatever it is you're trying to print against. And you go along through the series and you draw on the, draw a series of lines. And the point where one of them starts to bead up, so the ink on the surface starts to form little droplets rather than stick properly, you kind of know you've hit your limit. Mm. And so the way we would do the same experiment in the lab is really complicated. We'd have something called a contact angle measuring machine and we'd have this fancy kind of camera and we'd drop liquids of very known properties on it and we'd measure the angles and we'd run the Laplace equation and work out blah, 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 the surface <laughs> energy. If you're a printer, you just get your set of pens, you draw the lines on the thing and you work out what it is. And so that is doing, that is a, the same experiment, that's the same technique, but done in a really practical, pragmatic way that actually gets the job done really quickly. Mm. And so it was fascinating kind of being exposed to this kind of history of printing techniques and understanding that, you know, we're not the first here by a long way. We're not the first by a long way on any of this. And we can borrow from this rich history and we can really understand how to make our things better as a result and then go and go further and go in different directions with it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really common sort of thread in the sciences as well. Um, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I feel like it's only recently that um, it's become quite fashionable in the sciences to say that you're borrowing from the artistic world or even like the bio- biological world, right? Like biomimicry has become such a hot sort of buzzword in material science, definitely. Um, you know, looking to nature for inspiration for designing new structures or materials. Um, and I feel like I've definitely seen an increase in um, looking to less scientific fields for inspiration and in processes and materials as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So I know the biomimicry definitely, and in, you know, in many ways, it's kind of a it's both useful and also a bit of a buzzword, as you mm. say. Interesting about the borrowing from the arts. I, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but I think you're right. I think, um, yeah, it's and and you know, as long as it's done with good intentions and, and good respect, I think that's great. You know, mm. it's like understanding that there is this this rich heritage of work there, and that that um, you can gain a lot of knowledge and a lot of insight by studying what's come before in the arts and in the crafts, and in particular graphics arts in, in my field, um, mm. and seeing how that can. Um, can apply and how can that can affect things yeah it must be quite useful as well because like you were describing about the the contact angle experiments scientists have a tendency to overthink things and to over formulate their <laughs> what they're doing um whereas not all, i would say i've been in the sciences long enough to know that there is a there's a, a range of people not everyone overthinks everything yeah, some okay, people some enough. people need to think more about it before they do their experiment in my opinion <laughs> yeah fair enough yeah, I stand corrected. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, um, I, I know what you're saying. Like, the, the approach is over. You know, there is a tendency to overcomplicate, and that also yeah. comes from a place of of naivety. So, mm. you know, you got to remember that you don't. <laughs> my, my journey through science is a journey of continuously learning how little I know. Mm. Like, it's it's this continual reminder of your, your complete ignorance, um, and that is both brilliant because you get to spend all your time learning new things, and also terrifying at times. But it's also a respect that you don't 
like, like it, there's a really key bit of science for me that is about understanding that in other fields this might have already been studied mm. and not in an experimental context not in a way that was written up in the way you think it might be but there's this just rich domains of knowledge that can be can be pulled from um yeah to to, to get and, and it applies to you know materials and patterning and arts but also to a whole lot of other areas of, of science as well mm. where you can you know we can benefit from this knowledge sharing definitely but i think that takes a certain amount of acceptance as a scientist that you know the the methods that we use don't necessarily hold all the answers and i don't know whether all scientists share that kind of um kind of humble approach really to accept that you know maybe maybe science can't actually answer these questions or maybe someone else has done it before um which kind of actually brings me to um talk about your podcast because that um scientists not the science it's all about kind of showing the human side and the kind of fallibility of scientists um which I think really ties into what we've been talking about, about, um, you know, borrowing from the arts and looking elsewhere for for inspiration and solutions. Um, so I'd be really interested to hear kind of why you think, why you think it's important to show the human side of scientists. Because it's the truth. I think, and almost like when I, even when you were saying just then about, um, you know, scientists having a, a kind of um, a snobbery for accepting mm. other information effectively if i'm paraphrasing um i mean that isn't that isn't really true of the scientists i work with mm. and it's not if i'm really honest and i really reflect upon my experience it it's not true of the of my peers it's not true of the students i work with it's not it's not true of that maybe true of the odd odd professor you know kind of higher up but I, I feel like the 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 current generation of scientists in the labs are are not of that stereotype and you know i work with many scientists who are poets who are dancers who are um you know performers who are jugglers are or whatever there's there's that that all exists and i think showing a bit more of that is really valuable Mm. um for for two reasons one it's it it kind of dispels the stereotypes and it and it is a, a fairer reflection of of where science is and how science how scientists, I should say, fit into the greater scheme of things. Um, and also because it, it, otherwise it becomes this barrier mm. and the the people who stay within science will start to fit a certain stereotype and start to fit a certain pattern. Um, and for me, fundamentally, my philosophy is that that, that limits how the power of science. So, you know, science is, is essentially a collection of knowledge written by a group of scientists and depending on who those scientists are will depend on how they frame their writings and frame their reporting and it will frame how they what experiments they choose even to begin with and what even they want to study mm. and so for me that capturing that richness of what of what the scientists i work with and and who i work with and i know have all these links to these different topics and making sure that those people can come through that system mm. is really important um and I'm not saying the podcast does that, but it tries to kind of explore those topics and explore maybe the structural barriers that prevent that as well. Mm. Amazing. Well, if people have enjoyed hearing from you, um, I often ask guests, where can people go to sort of find out more or have a go themselves? Um, where would you recommend? Are there any kind of links online where people can kind of see these processes? Ooh, um, I don't know off the top of my head and maybe mm. <laughs> maybe afterwards I'll send you out. Sure. I think um, the closest thing in being able to do it at home would be something like um, the kind of world of raspberry pies and, mm. and circuits and things. So 
um, people design can design their own circuit boards at home called um, printed circuit boards, PCBs. Um, and these are often made using graphics art techniques like screen printing. Um, and so it's kind of feasible um, to kind of get hold of custom ones or start to kind of look at that. So there's there's that kind of area. If you're interested in things like um, conductive inks or, or, you know, there's a lot of um, carbon-based products out there. So like, uh, you know, pens that you can use to draw to make resistors or to make conductive traces. And that's all part of this same world. And it's all part of the same idea of materials. Um, so, yeah, there's a few places where, you know, people can do that. And and you see online, especially like people who really get into their electronics can can go for it. Like we're, we're very lucky that we live in a time now where, you know, it's not without cost, but you can feasibly come up with your own circuit and get it made and start to, mm. to build things, um, at least using um, off the shelf components. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I was at a conference once, 3D printing conference, and someone had used the 3D printer to extrude Vegemite onto a piece of toast and use that as a circuit because apparently Vegemite is quite conductive. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, oh. there's your homework. <laughs> no, I'm just, I was already cringing at the mention of Vegemite. I can't do Vegemite, I can't do Marmite. <laughs> oh, you said Vegemite and I switched out and my brain was going, oh, oh. why would you do that? Okay, I think from memory, fine. I think the presenter was Australian. So maybe that's the explanation. Okay. But, oh, um, conductive Play-Doh is great as well. You can also oh, uh, nice. put a load of salt in clay, into Play-Doh and it becomes conductive. And so if you're that's with cool. kids and stuff, you can make they can make their own play-doh circuits and light things up that's quite cool great oh that sounds so fun i want to do that today now (laughs) (laughs) um and if people have enjoyed hearing from you um there's obviously the podcast but can they look you up anywhere else online as well yeah um i mainly exist in the podcast world um so that's uh can i plug my own podcast yes please (laughs) amazing um scinotsci.com s-c-i-n-o-t-s-c-i.com and that's the link to all the episodes um I think one of my favourite ones recently, uh, look up uh, Professor Chris Jackson. There's an episode called Being a Positive Role Model. Um, I talked to Chris before he was cool and I <laughs> did the Christmas lectures and he was this, you know, I didn't, he was already caught cool at that point. He was already like jumping down volcanoes on TV and stuff. Um, but that was such a fun conversation. So that gives you a real taste of the kind of people uh, I'm talking to and the kind of ideas we're sharing and so on. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but not really on Twitter. So you can follow me. I'm um, at Stuart G Higgins or at Sign What's I. Um, but I don't, I know, I just kind of sit there in the background watching quietly everyone else do cool things. But, you know, you can always reach out. It's cool. Just lurking, lurking on yeah, social just media. L- lurking creepily in the background. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to chat to you about, um, yeah, the, the science art crossover, because that's what this podcast is all about. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great fun. So that was the fantastic Stuart Higgins. Thanks so much to him for coming on the pod and definitely check out his pod as well, Scientists Not the Science. That's everything for this week. As always, come and like and subscribe to us so you don't miss out on the rest of the party. If you want to support with a one-time donation, you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. Thanks so much to everyone who's already helped to keep us going there. Say hi to us on social media, on Twitter at Realtalk and on Instagram at HandmadePod. And as always, a huge thanks to Dave Shepard for our awesome cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next week, I'll be talking to Flora Arbuthnot about natural dyes. But until then, take very good care and I'll look forward to speaking to you next week on Handmade. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.